Passion Week, and next week we get to celebrate Easter together. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and just share in these moments. Uh, Lord, it's a joy, it's a privilege, it's a blessing to come and to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, and just to celebrate. But not just celebrate, lost, Lord, but just also remember. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to these moments coming forward. Because the crucifixion really did change everything. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've spent any time with me, um, or if you've met me, or if you've, you've talked to me, you should know, and if you don't know, I'm telling you right now, I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of my top five uh, favorite English people. Um, I try to read the Chronicles of Narnia every single year. There's just so much depth and just theological truth in even just the children's books, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Voyage of the Dawn Shutter, all of those books. I love to read them. I love to read them. I'm starting to read them with my kids. Um, just started reading it with James. James is three years old. Uh, we talk about it, but he really doesn't get it so much so yet. He knows the lion's good and the witch is bad and, you know, that he wants to have a sword and, and hit people with it. So we're, we're just working through that process. But I'm excited to share the truth that come through the Chronicles of Narnia, not only with James, but, but with you all, because I think there's some true beauty in some of the literature. Now, the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I know you've all read, and if you haven't, I'll just give you a synopsis of it. It's actually the second book in chronological order, which is a different topic, but we'll talk about that later. It's the, the first book that Lewis wrote about Narnia and about Aslan, the, the, the Jesus-type figure in the book. And there's about these Pevensey children there away at this professor's house because of the war. And in England, that's what they used to do because of the bombings. And so they would stay and they were playing around in this house and they found this wardrobe. And they walk into the wardrobe and they enter into this place of Narnia. A place that's always winter but never Christmas. Kind of a place of despair and darkness at the time. And the Pevensey children, Lucy being the youngest, finds the wardrobe first, and then her brother Edmund comes. Unbeknownst to everyone else in the family, she, he enters into the wardrobe and he meets the white witch and he betrays his family for a piece of candy. And then the story continues on. It, it creates this catalytic uh, just series of events where it ends up Aslan, the Jesus type, the, the hero of the story, trades himself to the white witch for Edmund. And the white witch decides to kill Asland on a stone table, claiming victory over Narnia. And we'll pick up in the book, and I know you guys all have your books. It's on page 155 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, we'll be begin reading there. Aslan had just died on the stone table, and, and Lucy and Susan were able to see the whole event and they turn around. Oh, 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 cried the two girls rushing back to the table. It's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. 
Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It's more magic. They looked around. They're shining in the sunrise larger than they had seen before, shaking his mane, for apparently had grown back again. Stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost as much frightened as they were glad. Aren't you dead? said Lucy. Not now, said Aslan. You're not, you're not a, asked Susan. She couldn't even bring herself to say the word ghost. Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. The warmth of his breath and the rich sort of smell that seems to hang from his hair came all over. Do I look it, he said. Oh, you're real, you're real. Oh, Aslan cried Lucy, and both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean? Asked Susan when they were somewhat calmer. No greater question could be asked about the story of Jesus Christ and about the crucifixion. What does it all mean? Is it just more magic? One of the things I've been doing in my life and processing over these last couple years is how do I see and find the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not only in everyday interactions and in life, but in stories and in movies and and fairy tales. And I've trained myself and my, my wife and my kids and we've been looking at life in a different way, looking and seeing how we can find the truth of who Jesus Christ is in these stories. And what I've realized is that that stories and movies are all integrated with the truth of Jesus. Anytime a hero dies and saves the princess or someone sacrifices their life for someone else, that's a great movie. Or Beauty and the Beast recently, how transformational love turns a beast into a human. The good news of Jesus Christ permeates that story. And where the absence of Jesus or Jesus is removed from a story, we get a lot of our horror films. We get a lot of the things that are they're hard to see. Some of the news stories and different things show the depravity of man. It's intentionally taken out the hope and joy in these movies and stories. And even with the absence of Jesus, I see the truth of our humanity in these stories, which brings me closer to Christ. And I see all these things. And what I'm finding out and what I'm seeing is that everything that I've thought and everything that I'm preaching, everything that we've talked about since I started in August and since I became a believer in Christ when I was 16 until Jesus died on the cross, everything that we know in our lives points back to this moment. Because without the crucifixion, there's no Easter. A lot of us like to see and talk about Jesus with his, his long flowing hair with the lamb and the lion and it's hung up in a lot of different churches in a lot of different ways. But very rarely do we talk about the crucifixion. I still don't understand how in the Middle East with the humidity and the heat and all the stuff that his hair stays so flat and flowing. But hey, I'm not the artist, I don't know. But I think that we don't like to look at the crucifixion. 
I don't think we like to look and see Jesus bloody, beaten, and bruised. Because as we look at Jesus, it points back at us. Isaiah kind of lays it out for us, I think pretty clearly. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1, ending in 10. Isaiah was written 600 years before any of this has happened. But it seems almost as if the author was standing at the foothills of Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, looking up at the cross with the three men sitting there being crucified. It's almost as if he wrote this, looking up at them. It's beautiful how Isaiah writes this, but it brings a lot of fruit, I think, to us as we read it today. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a, gr- a man of sorrow, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If I could somehow produce a picture, put it on the screens left and right, and show you Jesus and the 12 disciples, we as a congregation would be hard pressed to figure out which one of those was Jesus. Because despite popular belief, he looked like every other Palestinian Jew at the time. He had nothing that we would look at him, he had nothing that we would esteem, and there was no beauty No form or majesty that we would look at him. He was a normal guy. God in flesh. The beauty of Isaiah continues on though. And I want to draw your attention to this back and forth banter. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we 
he, our, he, our. We. A lot of us don't like to look at the crucifixion because, one, it's brutal and it's difficult. But two, it points back to us. A lot of us may never have heard this, and it took me a while for, to fully understand this. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they did not kill Jesus. The truth of the matter is you didn't kill Jesus either. Did he die for our sins? Yes. Did he die because of our sins? Yes. But Isaiah 53.10 explains it clearly. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord. To crush him. So many times we don't look at the crucifixion or we try to get past it because we want to see Jesus as this beautiful, eternal God raising from the dead and Easter's coming. I promise it's coming, but without the crucifixion, there's no hope. Without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. A lot of us, if you've never been in church or if you've been around church or if you've been to a baseball game, you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It's a verse we all memorized in school or different places or a lot of us we know. It's the verse that everyone throws out. It's probably not right for me to say this as a pastor, but I have a problem with that verse. Because the word gave, it, it seems like, oh, God gave us Jesus all. Thank you, like a gift or present. Or thank you, Jesus, for, for giving us Jesus. And that's true. And praise be to God. But one of the things I've done in my life is I lay Isaiah 53.10 over John 3.16. And I pray and I hope that all of you do the same after this moment. For God so loved the world that he crushed his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't just give us Jesus, he crushed him. Destroyed him. I think we take the crucifixion lightly sometimes. I think that we, we don't even like to look, yeah, the, the nails in the feet, the nails in the hand, the beatings, the, 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 the crown, the horse blanket that was put on his beaten, shredded back that probably looked like ground beef. That's hard. But I think God uses that to show us just a glimpse of what Jesus really went through. I was trying to process in my mind to understand just a little bit. And the best I could come up with is a time that I felt unjustly accused. Maybe my brother or sister did something and my parents blamed me. Maybe it was a school and they said I was cheating and I really wasn't. Maybe it's a betrayal from a friend or a family member. Maybe it's somebody who's left you or, or abused you. Whatever it is, something that's unfairly done to you. I think that gives us a glimpse, a small glimpse or insight into the reality of what Jesus was going through. The physical part was beyond anyone in this room could handle. 
But the spiritual and the emotional part was something only God can handle. Because even realizing and introspectively looking at my life, I knew how frustrated and upset it was, but it was done to me not by my choice. Jesus walked in this. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus was betrayed by his disciple, his friend with a kiss, and he, he had opportunity. Peter cut off Malchus's ear. He could have brought legions of angels and stopped it, but he kept walking. He gets to Pilate, and they say, hey, who do you want? He keeps walking. They send him back and send him to the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He could have proved it. The religious people of the time. He could have proved it. Here in Genesis 3, 18, when it says, hey, they'll strike my heel and I'll crush his head. That's me. I'm the burning bush that saved the people out of Exodus. Out of Egypt. I'm the lamb that was killed. Instead of Isaac, you know, Abraham, the, the guy that you worship, that, that was about me. Remember when Abraham made the covenant with God and it said, hey, even if you guys don't fulfill this, I'll destroy myself. God says, I'll destroy myself. You remember that? Genesis 15, guys, read it. It's in your scroll. That's about me. Isaiah 53, I'm the suffering servant. I'm the one. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take your, your transgressions. I'm the one. That's me. That's me. Everything in the Old Testament points to this moment, and Jesus stands there silent. Why? What does it mean? He could have proven it. He could have proven that he was God. He could have healed him. He could have, just like when Malchus's ear was called off, and he says, I am he, and the, the soldiers fall down like the Star Wars force. You read it. It's in there. He could have stopped it. But he kept walking. Then he goes to Herod and he goes to, 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 to Caiaphas and he goes to all these people and the, the rulers of the world, the Pontius Pilate. He could have proved it. Millions, thousands, hundreds, angels pour out of everywhere, destroyed everything. Could have done it. But he didn't open his mouth like a sheep to a slaughter. Why? And then he's brought out in front of his friends, his peers, his family. Who do you want? You want Barabbas? You want Jesus? You want Jesus, the one that made the prostitute feel whole? The one that healed the blind man, that healed the leper? Brought the centurion's family back to life, the one that raised Lazarus? You want that guy? You want the, the guy that gives people value? You want the guy that restores people? You want that guy? You want Barabbas, who's done things against God and humanity. Destroying people's lives, killing, murdering. I'm sure he did a lot of other things. Who do you want? You want the one that makes people whole? You want the one that makes people restored? You want, you want the blind man to see again, or do you want this? We want that. Everyone in this room... At some point in their life has chosen Barabbas. We want that. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with this man? The one that is healed and restored. Jerusalem. Crucify him. 
crucifixion was just the part of the story. The weight that Jesus had of our sins and my sins, collectively as a whole, the, the Syrias, the World War II's, the, the, the Crusades, the, the sex trafficking, the whatever, that's what's going on. The times that you were abused in your life, physically, emotionally, sexually, the times you've been abandoned, abused, and bruised, that's what's happening. The nails in the feet, the beat, beatings of the back, I'm not saying it flippantly, but those were minor compared to what Jesus is experiencing in the moments on the cross when he's looking at you. He's looking at me, where my sin is adding to it, pre-Christ and after Christ. Before I was a believer and after I'm a believer, I'm still a sinner. And Jesus knew it and saw it, and he says, I want you. We sang it earlier it was my sin that held him there, not by force, by choice. Jesus gives us reason. My time in Haiti as a missionary, reason. If not, it's just, it's just misery. Thousands of people dying a day from curable diseases and different things. Without Jesus, it's pointless. Times I've been betrayed in my life, times I've made mistakes in my life, it's pointless. Meaningless without the crucifixion. I heard this in Beauty of the Beast, one of their new songs. Emma Watson's singing this song, and I really don't even understand, I don't think she understands what she's saying. It's been ringing in my heart and my mind every day since I've seen that movie, and it says, how in the midst of all this sorrow can so much hope and love endure? She's singing about teacups and different things, and I'm thinking about Jesus. How in the midst of all this sorrow can so much hope and love endure? Without the crucifixion, there's no Easter. There's no hope. I don't know where everyone's coming from, and I don't know what's on their plate. But without Jesus on dying on the cross, there's nothing for us. Beaver's talking to the children, describing Aslan. He says, safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver's telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus isn't safe. But he's good. And in Christ... There's hope. In Jesus Christ, there's hope. But without Jesus, I'm sorry, there's none. I want to help you understand that in these next moments. I want to help you understand that without Jesus, there really is no hope.